a church that believes that loving God and loving people are the commandments that Christ called us to and that we're willing to die on that hill tonight. And, and honestly, I just really want to take a second and say this, this is really on my heart, that um, like this is real. This isn't fake. This isn't some show that we all come to and we put on so that we can all feel better about ourselves. Like this is the real pursuit of what it means to live lives that glorify the king of the universe. And so if you're here tonight and you're asking this question that was just on the screen that we saw the disciples ask last week after Jesus rebuked the storm, if that's the question that you're asking, I want you to know that this is a place, this is a church, this is a community where you can wrestle with the question, who is this? That can even rebuke the winds and the waves, that, that everything sits under his sovereign plan. If you're here tonight and that's where you're at, I say, Welcome. And if you're here tonight and you're just like, I'm just a messed up punk sinner, I say welcome and join the crowd, all right? Like you can buy the t-shirt out front, you know what I'm saying? That's, that's us. We're in desperately need of God's grace here, so we're glad that you're here. If you don't have a Bible, you're going to need one, come up and grab one from one of our ginormous subwoofers. We work through the scriptures verse by verse. Apparently everyone has one, sweet mother, all right? Open to Luke chapter 8. Last week we saw this. We saw Jesus tell the disciples, hey boys, get in the boat because we're going to be heading across the lake. And he says that. He said, we're going to the other side of the lake. And amidst the lake, there's this massive storm that comes up and we see the disciples scared for their lives, which we all would be because the sea represents this kind of this human form of weakness, of chaos, of distress. And Jesus wakes up from his sleep, taking a little nappy night-night time, and he rebukes the storm. And then Jesus asks, what question? He says, where is your faith? Right here, right now. And I made a statement last week, and I want to start here again this week. Your response to the storms that are inevitable in our life, financial duress, relational breakup, job hardship, your response to the storms that are inevitable in our life shed a great light and point a spotlight on your answer to the question, where is your faith. And I said that the world is looking in, not on the good times at the church. They know what we do in the good times. All right? We, we, we dance around and we give each other high fives and we wear cool t-shirts. The world is looking to see what the church of God will do in the storms. How will they respond? Why? Why are they looking to us then? Because that is where they connect with. Because we saw last week that, that God is light and in Him there is no darkness at all. And the reality is, is there is an entire world out there without Christ that is living in the darkness. And so they're captivated by when we as Christians have struggles too. And so they look in in our response to the storm and in those moments they're able to see what Christ is really doing in our life. And so friends, I ask you, where is your faith? Ironically, the question that the disciples asked after that like, who is this that rain and wind can be rebuked by this man is going to be answered by an unlikely suspect tonight. So open your Bibles to Luke chapter 8. You guys all there already? Amazing, all of you Bible scholars. Verse 26. They sail. This is coming right out of the... Oh, one more thing while I'm thinking about it. Most of you guys... I'm sorry. There's a little side note here. Most of you guys uh, go to a lot of families. There's a small group on Sundays. They want to wake up because of the storm on Sunday night, right? Like we just spent our entire small group talking about this massive storm. We hadn't had rain in what, like eight months here in St. Louis, you know? And then all of a sudden, out of the blue, on Sunday night, there's this massive storm. I, I just find that funny. Here we go. Verse 26. 
a few, a few of you others as well. They sailed to the region of Gerasenes, which is across the lake from Galilee. Now, there's all kinds of uh, controversy about where this region really is. All right? Is this, this ancient ruin called Gersha? Is this, this city called Gerda? Is this, like, what really is this, uh, uh, um, this place? And all that we can say for sure is that Jesus says, go across the lake. And we're going to see how the lake plays a part in the story. So, it doesn't really matter that much, but this is probably in the general area of the capitalist that was right across on the other side of the lake or the Sea of Galilee. So all of this scene, everything is taking place right here, verse 27. When Jesus stepped ashore, he was met by a demon-possessed man from the town. And, and already, like, some of your stomachs are beginning to churn because you just saw the word demon and, and I want to bring us in a little bit to the story because you already read the subtitle probably, so I don't have to be a Captain Obvious and tell you that this is the story of a healing of a demon-possessed man. But like demons, we can't play around with the story. We can't for a second like just sit around and laugh because we're all picturing Satan with some huge tail and pointy ears or something. This story is a very real story, a very deep story, a story that is going to connect with each of us somehow, somewhere, in some way. And I just want each of you to, to, to be brought into that idea that this is not, like we're not messing around tonight, that Ouija boards or things of the spiritual realm are not to be messed with or played around with, right? Flipping your Bibles to Ephesians really quick. I want to show you guys a, a, a passage just to bring us into this conversation a little bit more. Flipping your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. I said last week that every step of Christ on this earth is extremely purposeful. Every step is headed towards Jerusalem. And so when he tells the boys, hey, put out the shore and go to the other side of the lake, he knows full well the storm is coming. And guess what? He knows that on the other side of the lake, who's going to be meeting him on that seashore? A man who's possessed by many demons. Friends, every step of Christ is so purposeful. It keeps coming back to his mission and purpose. Glorify the Father. Be obedient. Ephesians chapter 6 verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty, what's that word? Power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. I need to remind each of you of this verse, right? Because I know it's easy to think that your struggle is against the person who just cut you off or that your struggle is against your wife or your husband or that your struggle is with your kids or that your struggle ultimately is with that relationship that is causing so much turmoil and hardship in your life. For, for, your, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Can you guys all get that crystal clear in your mind? Look at this. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Now, if you haven't spent too much time in the church, right now you're like, what in the heck is going on in here? You know what I'm saying? Like, are we going to be busting out some, like, exorcism clothes, if there's even such a thing? Like, what? Like, what's going on? I've seen the exorcism of heavenly rose. Like, these things freak me out. I need to share with you guys that there is a real spiritual life that is happening around us at all times. And I can't like put a box on that and I can't draw a diagram for you and connect all the docs like with some type of etch-a-sketch or something. I can't do that. But all I can do is point you to the scripture is that we know that Hasatan, the accuser in Hebrew, 
is a fallen angel and has subordinates that are called demons. And, and their mission on this earth, given power by God. Again, Satan has no power that hasn't been allowed him by God. I know that's a hard concept to grasp too, but again, if, if he has power that hasn't been allowed him from God, then God really isn't sovereign. That he is out of pride trying to pull as many as he possibly can from this message of Christ. It's just like, it's just like, like you in some type of athletic sport or something. Like There's that rivalry, there's that pride that wants everything that that other team has out of jealousy and rage. Again, I wish I had some like better diagram for you to describe this, but all I can say is that our battle, our struggle, is not against flesh and blood. So if you haven't spent much time in the church, let me break down all of the baggage and let me break down all of the, like the vocabulary words for you and just say this, that there's something else going on here. There's something else going on in this room. There's something else going around your life. And it's deep and it's spiritual. And your battle is against that. So I don't, I don't want to paint this scary picture, but at the same time I want to paint a scary picture. <laughs> but at the end of this story, I think that you're going to see great hope. Flip back to Luke. Jesus stepped ashore and he was met by a demon-possessed man from the town. For a long time this man had not worn clothes, interesting, or lived in a house, but had lived in the tombs. Again, I don't know a whole lot about demon possession, but this passage is going to give us some inclinations on what demon possession is and what it looks like. First of all, he's naked, okay? He's possessed by demons and he's naked. Now, like this may be something that's a little bit funny to you, but there's some huge implications here. Nudity post Adam and Eve is a sign of what? It's a sign of humiliation, right? And, and not just that, but he lives where? In the tombs, not in the city, so if a man is possessed by a demon, in this case, he's stricken nude as an object of humiliation and then placed in isolation in a tomb. What this is also doing is it's ex- exploiting some of the tactics of the enemy. Humiliation. Isolation. Friends, you, you guys will remember that God says in the early parts of Genesis, it is not good for what? For man to be alone. That we're not to be isolated. No, no, no. If you're here tonight and you're like, yeah, this story's going to be great, but I can't relate because I've never been demon-possessed, right? I mean, I've seen the movies and stuff, but I've never been demon-possessed. Let me say this to you. Have you ever felt so lonely that there just seems like there's no hope in the world? Have you ever felt like that there's no one that you can call and someone would pick up the other line and answer and give some type of encouragement? Have you ever felt so isolated from the world that Honestly, you just want to end it all. I'm not saying that you can relate fully if you've ever felt that way, but you can relate a little bit. Have you ever just felt humiliated? Like you are just some gross individual, and and we are ultimately, but it's just that lie. It's like that chasm of being fully depraved, and yet through the person of Christ, fully what? Accepted, you know? So again, I want to try to connect you guys to the aspects of demon possession that maybe you can connect with. Loneliness and isolation. This is the tactic of the enemy. Can you see this? Can you see times in your life where you've believed the lie that you're all alone? That no one really cares? That everyone's looking at you with beady eyes and thinking to themselves, how can this person even live? 
I felt that many times. In fact, I felt it in the church. May we continue to fight the battle in this community, friends, of isolation. I want to remind each of you again the dangers of gossip, the dangers of pointing fingers of judgment. I want to remind you again that this needs to be a place where people can be where people can see the reflected love and passion of Jesus and come in and enter in not feeling like if they were to show their struggles that they instantly would be judged or gossiped about. Do you see how that is a tactic of the enemy? And that there are churches and even us at times who are plagued by giving into that temptation. The tactic of the enemy is to isolate, is to humiliate and we know, friends, that that's not the way that God has created us. Amen? So let's keep going. Verse 28. But when he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell at his feet, shouting at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? The disciples, Jesus' followers, at the end of the last uh, story, are saying, Who is this that can even calm the storm? And here Satan, his demons, are saying, what do you want with us, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? James says what? That even the demons believe in God and shudder. They don't have a saving faith, but they have a belief that He's real. The disciples, can you see this? The disciples are saying, who is this? And here are, are the demons saying, what do you want with us, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? And even more importantly, look at what they say. I beg you, don't. What's the word there? Don't torture me. That word, torture, can, can I put this in context for you? What, what it means to say don't torture me is someone who is sitting in submission to someone else. It's someone who is sitting underneath someone else's power and authority in fear that the person who is above them could what? Could endanger them, could torture them, could beat them. Do you see this? That here we have demons who are saying, don't torture us. In other words, they're fearful. Why? Because Jesus has greater power. Because they are in submission to Christ. Again, if this is not uh, some type of reminder to you that this story ultimately is about the power and victory and grace of Jesus, then we're missing it because the demons are scared. And we're going to see how many of them there are here in a second, but we'll, we'll even get deeper into this torture aspect here in a second. But look at this. For Jesus had commanded the evil spirit to come out, verse 29, of the man. Many times it had seized him. And though he was chained hand and foot and kept under guard, he had broken his chains and had been driven by the demon into solitary places. We see a couple other characteristics here of demon possession. A, a, a large amount of strength. Can you imagine like any better picture of just being in complete bondage? Friends, have you ever been so controlled by your lust that it's like you had no control? Have you ever been so burdened by your jealousy that it was like you didn't know what to do or where to turn? I mean, this is a demon possession is a complete lack of control. It's these demons inside of this man are doing everything, this great amount of strength, yelling at the top of the lungs, pushing to a solitary place, and look at what Jesus asked. What is your name? Now, in ancient magical exorcisms, what you would do if you were an exorcist is you would 
You would say the name of a, of a spirit. You would give it a name. And the thought was is that if you gave the spirit a name, that then they would be sitting in submission to you because you just gave it a name. Like you had the power basically to say the name of a spirit. Jesus doesn't take that approach. He says, what is your name? He like flips it. He says, actually, I'm in control, and I'm just curious as to what you would say. What is your name, even though I already know what you're going to say? And the demons reply this. Legion, he replied, because many demons had gone into them. Now, this is where it gets scary. Legion is a Latin word that's referring to the Roman army and can be up to 6,000 soldiers. Mary Magdalene, we just saw a couple chapters ago, had seven evil spirits. Matthew, in, in Matthew's account of this story, records that Jesus sends them, we're going to see this here in a second, into 2,000 pigs. So if legion in the Latin term means 6,000 soldiers, let's say that there's between 2,000 and 6,000 demons in this one man. Again, because I don't understand the depth of demon possession, I don't know like, what the difference would be between 1,999 and 2,000, but all I know is that's a lot of evil. That's a lot of evil gripping one Man, again, I need, to, I need you guys to see this man who is completely burdened, completely encapsulated, completely chained. He has a complete lack of control, but Jesus is on the scene. Legion, he says, is his name. Verse 31. And friends, this, this is going to get good. And they begged him reportedly, uh, repeatedly not to order them to go into the abyss. Which begs the question, what is the abyss and why are they scared about uh, being sent there? And this statement has huge implications. In the account of Mark, that Mark records, listen to this. Uh, the, the demons say, have you come to torture us before the appointed time? Flip to Revelation chapter 20. That's right, I said Revelation. So if you're already freaking out, you're like left behind something or other, you know. You guys read, read the series, you're like, oh no, what's going to happen? Hail's coming down from heaven, you know. Revelation chapter 20. I just want to give us a picture of biblically what the abyss is. Have you guys seen the uh, mid, mid-90s movie, The Abyss? Yeah. Pretty scary movie, really. And The Abyss, just by definition, is this huge, watery pit, all right, which is pretty accurate here in the, with the definition of, of the movie. Verse, 20, or verse 1 says this of chapter 20 in Revelation. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss, and holding in his hand a great chain. He sees the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. Again, I'm not diving into all of the, uh, all of the technicalities of Revelation, but... What the scripture is clear about is there is going to be a period of a thousand years where Satan is sent into the abyss and then he is released for a short amount of time preparing him for verse 7. You guys see this? Revelation chapter 20 verse 7. When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. In number, they are like the sand on the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, that can't be good, where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They, were, they will be tormented day and night 
forever and ever. Have you come, Jesus, to torture us before the appointed time? Have you come to throw us into the abyss? What does this say? The demons, in submission of Satan, Hasatan, the accuser, know what their fate will be. They know that their fate is destruction. They know where they're headed. And they know that Jesus has the power to do it right here and right now. Are you, are you going to torture us before the appointed time? Are you going to send us away, Jesus? What are you going to do, son of the Most High God? The demons have a better concept of defeat than we as Christians have a concept of victory. I don't understand that. The demons have a great concept of defeat and they're fighting tooth and nail before that time is over and we as Christians sit like we have it all together not living in victory of the grace of the person of Jesus Christ. I don't understand. We win. We win. Like is there any better picture that you can get of what happens of demons sitting and shuddering in fear because Jesus had the power to send them here and now? And yet we sit in here not victorious because of what Jesus did for our life. And we have the audacity to get wrecked by some storm. You see how all this fits together with last week, friends? It's beautiful. It's perfect. Let's keep going. The story is barely over. Verse, uh, verse 32. A large herd of pigs was feeding there on a hillside. A large herd of pigs would tell you what? If you're herding pigs in the time of Jesus, pork bad, all right? So if you're herding pigs, uh, what does that make you? A Gentile or at least a non-practicing Jew, all right? Because Jews didn't eat pigs, they didn't eat pork, it was unclean, all right? So if there's a, a large herd of pigs and it's probably being shepherded, is that what you call someone who herds pigs? I don't know, but it's being shepherded uh, by some type of Gentile who is a non-Jew, simply put, or by, a non-practicing, uh, or by a non-practicing Jew. So there's this huge herd of pigs, and this is going to be a controversial story in and of itself. The demons begged Jesus to let them go into them, and he gave them permission. And can, can we just picture this? Matthew, again, records 2,000 pigs. So uh, you see this demon-possessed man, and you're watching Jesus, and he sends the demons into this 2,000 pigs. Just, just Can you picture that in your mind? Like, they don't make movies like that anymore. You know, like, this is, like, this is a moment... For the ages, verse 33, when the demons came out of the man, they went into the pigs and then the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. I think it's ironic that they drowned in the same sea that Jesus just had mastery over. I think it's also ironic that they're, that they're drowned in a sea when the abyss, just by definition, is this huge lake of just endless fluid but people, like, people get ruffled up by this verse. Like, how could a loving God just, just wreck this whole economic system? I mean, two, have you ever heard this argument before? 2,000 pigs. Why would Jesus, this great, graceful, faithful, loving God, like, ruin the lives of this 2,000 pigs? Psalm chapter 50 says that every animal is his. We forget for a second that these pigs are, like, what are they? Are they these people's anyway? It's, like, it's just like us looking at our resources like they're ours instead of they're God's and he, and he, by His grace, is sharing them with us. We get all caught up in, oh, no, no, that's my herd, that's my herd. Don't, don't mess with my herd. Here comes the storm. Don't do that with my herd. When Jesus like, what herd and whose is it? It's 1-800-MINE, my friend. You know what I mean? And, and don't, don't even think for a second 
that you own this herd or have control of this herd. And then, and then there's this whole rhetoric about the sparrows, right? And then there's, there's this whole rhetoric. And I'm not saying I'm, I'm not, I don't like animals. But to think for a second that animals are on an equal playing field as humans is completely unbiblical. I'm not making some political position. I'm just stating that, that there is a clear difference between animals and humans in the scheme of God. All dogs don't go to heaven, all right? I'm sorry to ruin your day. Right? We'll, we'll get into that a whole other time. All right? Apologize for you dog lovers. We can talk about that later. Verse 34. When those tending the pigs saw what had happened, they ran off and reported in the town and, and countryside. Again, they're, they're, they're struggling with that this herd was theirs. And, and again, I can understand that it would be some, somewhat of a controversy if you just saw your entire herd drown in the lake. But all I know to this man who was just demon-possessed, is it worth trading 2,000 pigs for one man's eternal freedom? Is it worth trading five minutes of your precious, precious time to have a conversation with the individual in Walmart? Is it worth a phone call to a person who you have had a broken relationship with when there could be restoration and beauty that comes out of it? It's like, what are they weighing? 2,000 pigs versus a man's freedom from demons? But we do this every day. And the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. He's dressed. He's not naked anymore. He's in his right mind. He's not talking loudly and screaming loudly. In an instant, freedom has been brought to this man. Through what? Through Jesus, period. All the things, all the evidence of demon possession by the power of God was just evidenced by the herd of pigs and now here's this man in his right mind completely freed sitting at the feet of Jesus. Friends, I'm not saying that you can relate to being demon possessed but can you relate a little bit to being lost, lonely and confused and then being found all of a sudden accepted in the person of Jesus and being able to sit back at the feet of the cross and saying, God, I'm so thankful for you. Can you relate to that? I'm not saying that you can relate to being possessed by some 2,000. But what I'm saying is, can any of you relate just to being freed from your sin through the person of Christ? And if you can't relate to that, what I'm telling you is, is that is what comes through Jesus. If you're here tonight and you have spent no time in the church, or maybe you've been wrestling with the question, who is this? Let me tell you this picture right here of Jesus healing a man who was in the greatest amount of bondage that could possibly happen, friends, sits underneath and now is freed by Jesus. That is for you too, my friends. That's Jesus. That's the gospel. I, as Christ, will restore because of our separation of sin so that one day when you stand before my Father, you may be seen as accepted. So if you're here and you're like, I'm just, I don't know Jesus. I'm lonely. I'm confused. I'm isolated. I feel like there's no one to talk to. I feel like I'm just, I just lack control. I feel like my whole life is lust. Sexual sin is... Abuse of alcohol or drugs or relational chaos, whatever it may be, He is the only restorer, friends. Verse 36. Those who had seen it uh, told the people how the demon-possessed man had been cured. And then all the people of the region of Gerasenes asked Jesus to leave them. 
because they were overcome with fear. So he got into the boat and left. Um, there's people that think that like Jesus is running after people. There, there's this theological standpoint that like Jesus is just like, you know, just running after people as hard as he can go. These people respond to the power of Christ and say, hey, we don't understand, so will you just leave? And what's the picture of Jesus? He gets in the boat and he leaves. So one man responds to the power of Christ by sitting at the feet of Jesus. And now we have a whole townspeople confused. Why? Because they have just seen something bigger than what they've ever seen before. They've just seen the spiritual world opened before them and they don't get that he is the controller of the spiritual world. And so he gets in the boat and he leaves. Verse 38. Um, the man from whom the demons had gone out begged to go with him. But Jesus sent him away saying, verse 39, return home and tell how much God has done for you. Which this statement is huge. He's been away from his home. He's been isolated. So what is Jesus saying? Hey, go back home. But I, I just want to follow you. I just want to go after you. I just want to seek you. I just... I just, can, can I just follow you? And Jesus says, no, 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 no. Remember, where, where are we at? If there is one Gentile on the other side of the lake, then there's a great chance that this region, friends, has many Gentiles around it. And if Luke, a Gentile, is writing to a Theophilus, a Gentile man, a Roman official, then is it possible that Jesus and Luke bring emphasis to it here as saying, no, 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 here's what I want you to do. I want you to go tell everyone, what does he say? What God has done for you. Here's this strange chasm of the Trinity being played out in this miracle. What God, Jesus' Son of the Most High God, has done for you. So the man went away and told all over town how much Jesus had done for him. Friends, I want to share this story with you guys from a couple different perspectives. First of all, we see, we see three responses uh, to power, okay? We, we, we see the response of the power of Christ, from, from all of these townspeople. And they're confused about the power of Christ. And they're um, indignant to the power of Christ. They're, they, like they, they don't want anything to do with the power of Christ. And so what do they, what do, they do? They, they respond and just and say, will you just leave? Like, I, I don't want anything to do with the power of Jesus. I, I don't want anything to... And there's some of you that have done that. Simply because you're confused. Simply because this whole like, spiritual God being bigger than yourself is confusing to you. Let me simplify it and say this. That He's big. Bigger than we can even grasp or understand. And here, we're thankful for that. If I could etch a sketch the plans and wills and powers of God for you, friends, that would make each of us God. Or the etch-a-sketch, strangely, you know? But that's not the case. God is this almighty, sovereign, powerful God. And so they just reject it. And then we have this image of the man. Of the man. And his response to God's power is, can I just follow you, please? From his vantage point, this story is this. He's demon-possessed by two to 6,000 demons. He's in bondage by every piece that could ever be in bondage by. 
And then this man, I need you guys to see this, is completely released, is completely freed. And so this man responds with the only way that he sees fit, with the only way that he sees how. He says, I have to sit at the feet of Jesus. My response to the power of God is to say, God, I just want to be around you. I just want to worship you. I just want to go after you. But there's a third response to the power of Jesus. And that's the demon's response. That's the response that says, you are completely in control of me. And because of that, I'm going to do everything I can here on this earth to wreak havoc. It's like complete, I know you're real, but I want nothing to do with you. And then there's this other group of guys who were on the boat on the lake. And this group of guys, even though they're not mentioned in the story, are right there. You've just heard Jesus say in, in Luke chapter 4, I've come to preach the good news of the kingdom of God. Because like that's why I came, he says. And then we saw just earlier in this chapter, Jesus saying to them, the secrets of the kingdom of God have been opened to you. Friends, you're a disciple. And like I said at the end of last week, you've seen a leper healed. You've seen dead man walk. You've seen Jesus just a second ago calm a storm. And now you see a man who is possessed by insane amounts of demons be completely healed. Friends, look at this. It's like story by story. Jesus is drawing the disciples into what is the kingdom of God. It's like he keeps honing in their hearts and in their minds. Guys, if you, if you continue to think that this is about right here and right now, you're missing it. If you think that my kingdom as the person of Jesus is just right here, right now in the flesh and blood, you don't understand me. Disciples, boys who were just on the boat who now saw this, you must get that my kingdom reaches so far into the spiritual that all you can do is sit back in fear and amazement like the townspeople, but respond in obedience because you realize I'm in control. It's like they just keep getting honed and brought into this image of the kingdom of God. Friends, the reality is most of us are living right here. We're living like this is life. We're acting as if all that... All that we have is right here and right now, things that we can touch and grasp, the physical. Friends, post-resurrection, the disciples, after seeing the risen Jesus, know full well what the kingdom of God is. And it's not something that they can just wrap their arms around and give a big bear hug to. It's something that's so much deeper and so real. And so they just keep pointing people back to the person of Jesus. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God, give us a perspective that this life is, is just a mist. That we're a part of something that's so much bigger, friends. We have to stop living like this is it. 
We have to start pointing people to the depths of what we have and what we have access to and the spirit that's inside of us. We need to talk to start talking about the Holy Spirit more. We need to stop being burdened and defeated. We have at our access the ability to continue to see the expanse of the kingdom of God. And like Jason was talking about, from Antarctica to the conversation in Laos that two people are having on the doorstep, the kingdom is expanding. And here we are living here and now, friends, church, it's time to arise in victory. It's time to see as a disciple sitting back watching all this, I am a part of something so much bigger. And if I miss it, I miss the movement of Christ. And they don't, do they? It's like they're wandering around. Jesus keeps teaching. He keeps teaching. And then he dies and he raises and they get it. They're pointing people and calling people to be a part of the kingdom of God. Friends, it's not something that we can wrap our minds around or something that we can create on a bulletin or even a song we can sing. The kingdom is bigger. And just when you think you understand the kingdom of God, it's bigger than that too. Let's stand together. I want to pray for us. I want to pray for those of you in this room that really relate to the demon-possessed man. Entrapped by a great amount of repetitive sin. Jesus is your answer tonight to be free. I want to pray tonight for God to open our eyes to the greater things, to the spiritual things, more and more to the kingdom of God, so that we too may grasp that this life, friends, is but a mist. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you that demons submit to you. I thank you that your word says resist the devil and he will flee. I thank you, God, in seeing a passage and watching demons shudder in fear because you're there. God, I thank you that I'm able to rest in your sovereign plan tonight and know that you will win and that I somehow mysteriously get to be a part of that victory that somehow I too will be connected to the Father because of you, Lord Jesus. Thank you. God, I pray for those in this room tonight who are hurting, who are lost, who are confused, who are burdened, who are in bondage. God, I pray that you'll open their eyes and their hearts to your great grace, that they will know that their only answer of freedom, of being let go from the chains, of being freed is through you, Lord Jesus. And I pray tonight that you will open our eyes that we will stop seeing and living like this is it. That we'll really believe that this life is more than we can touch. That this existence of ours, that more than we can even comprehend. And God, I pray that that fact alone tonight will humble us in awe. Will break us in amazement that even the winds and the waves obey you.